0: Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, director of the Americas program at CSIS and host of the 35 West podcast. With how professional
1: the Mexican, but government. are we ready? I don't reform I don't trends in Argentina. Right. And
0: that's what
1: happened.
0: Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, the director of the Americas program at CSIS and the co host of the 35 West podcast. One of the greatest foreign policy challenges the United States faces in Latin America is Nicaragua's entrenched dictatorship. In recent years, the authoritarian Ortega Murillo regime has consolidated power, systematically dismantled organized opposition, and brutally cracked down on public protests. Today, Nicaragua joins Cuba and Venezuela as the third full-fledged dictatorship in the hemisphere. To push back against the regime, the United States has deployed sanctions on individuals, on entities such as the National Police and on state mining companies such as Eneminas, and used trade-related measures such as the reduction in the sugar quota, to name a few, as well as directed executive directors of multilateral lending institutions to oppose financing under the NICA Act. It is also debated here in Washington whether Nicaragua can be suspended under the CAFTA-DR trade agreement. So far, these measures, as in other cases of economic sanctions around the world, have unfortunately not managed to move the regime toward behavior change. However, the United States is pondering a more muscular sanctions architecture as the Nicaraguan regime continues to run roughshod over human rights and the rule of law and could increasingly become a geopolitical threat to the United States. At the same time, the exercise of sanctions by the United States must be carefully calibrated to strike at the main sources of regime financing while reducing the economic collateral damage and its potential effects on ordinary Nicaraguans, thus contributing to economic dislocation and a potential uptick in migration headed north. To help us understand the difficulty of striking this balance, we are joined today by Eric Olson, Director of Policy and Strategic Initiatives for the Seattle International Foundation. In this episode, we will discuss the current sanctions regime against Nicaragua, as well as signs that a paradigm shift could well be underway and how the United States thinks about its approach to sectoral sanctions in the country. We will also delve into the potential and limitations of sanctions as a tool for affecting change in authoritarian regimes and the trade-offs involved in
1: constructing any sanctions architecture. Thank you so much for joining us today, Eric. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. I'm really glad to be here and have this conversation with you. Thank you.
0: Let's start talking about what the current sanctions architecture in Nicaragua looks like between executive authorities and significant legislation like the NICA and the Renacer Acts, the United States has amassed a considerable set of levers to employ against the regime. So to start us off, Eric, could you sketch a scene setter for us? What does the current sanctions architecture on Nicaragua look like?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. And in some ways I liken it to a spaghetti bowl because there are so many different elements here. I don't mean by saying that to minimize it. It's just a complex landscape. As you've rightly pointed out, there are a variety of sanctioned tools, authorities. Those differ by department that can exercise those authorities. Some are exercised by the Treasury Department, some by the State Department, as you mentioned, some by the White House through the executive order. All those have different areas. Generally, we would break them down by individual sanctions. Some of those individual sanctions are economic, targeting people that the United States believes are corrupt or engaged in undemocratic practices. Some of them are specific to a company or entity, like you've mentioned. There were, I think, 11 entities that have been sanctioned since 2018. And 2018, by the way, is the starting point That most of us have. There were sanctions before, but it was in 2018 that there was this massive repressive crackdown on the opposition. And so the United States and the European Union and others began to ratchet up their sanction regimes. And so some were individual, some were company or entities, some can be sectoral, like mining or agriculture. And then you get into, as you mentioned, some of the trade regimes. So it's a mishmash. We can talk individually, but roughly speaking, there are about 57 different sanctioning decisions that have been made since 2018. Eleven of those are on institutions and entities, companies, and the rest are on individuals. I like your
0: analogy of a spaghetti bowl. I want to stick with it and ask you Has the sanctions architecture, what you describe as a spaghetti bowl, has it been effective? And if so, how might we define the word effective? Because clearly in this case, we're not talking about regime change.
1: Yeah, this is always the debate when discussing sanctions. And I'm talking anywhere in the world here, right? Not just Nicaragua, Iran, Russia, et cetera. What is effective? I think, as you make clear, there are some easy parameters, right? One is it's not been effective in removing the regime. That's easy to say. We all agree. It's been effective in impacting certain people. There's no question about that. Some very powerful and corrupt people. That's also easy to agree on. It's that middle ground, you know, and how do we want to define effectiveness, as you pointed out. Now, most of us would argue that to be effective in a general way, we have to be very precise in what behavior change we'd like. It's not enough to say, well, we want democracy to appear and and bear fruit in Nicaragua. It's too general. It's too broad. That would be my goal. That's our hope. But in general, sanction regimes can't make those sorts of broad changes happen. Now, you could call for specific changes in behavior. And in fact, the Treasury Department defines sanctions as seeking a change in behavior, not just a punishment, even though a lot of us think of it as a punishment, but they're looking for a change of behavior. So it may be, in this case, allowing for free election or at least independent election monitors, something more narrow than again, democracy springing forth, broadly speaking. So I think, while I still believe sanctions have an important role to play in U.S. policy towards Nicaragua, I think we are still struggling to define that narrow objective and change of behavior that is needed. Now, others would argue, and I apologize here, but others would argue that it is about accountability. It is about Punishment. And some of the language the Treasury Department uses is about holding people accountable in Nicaragua for undermining democracy and human rights. So, yes.
0: Eric, within that gray zone that you outlined in the middle, where the word effective is rather difficult to define, do you think it is time to hit pause, review, and potentially revise the sanctions architecture on Nicaragua? Or would that present a problem because it would effectively be admitting that sanctions have been ineffective, thus too high a price to pay for policymakers?
1: Well, if by pausing you mean taking a moment to think about defining our objectives more strategically, then I would agree. If by pausing it means taking away what already exists, I wouldn't support that at this time. But I do think again, we need to spend a little more time thinking about defining what we want to accomplish through the sanctions regime. I think the focus should be as narrowly as possible on undermining the economic well-being of the Ortega family and their narrow economic interests, not necessarily all of Nicaragua. And I think that takes a lot of insight and thoughtfulness about how to how to manage that. I also think that sanctions are a valuable tool, but are not the only economic tool at our disposal. And so they need to be part of a well-thought-out strategy overall. I'm not convinced that the administration, the Biden administration, is really thinking in that holistic way about using of economic tools.
0: In October of 2022, the Biden administration issued a modification to the Trump era executive order 13851. They issued executive order 14088, which granted additional authorities to sanction sectors of the Nicaraguan economy. This executive order comes after years of discussion on the question of suspension of Nicaragua from the CAFTA-DR agreement. Does this executive order, in your mind, represent a paradigm shift in how the United States is thinking about bringing pressure against the regime?
1: It does in a way. I think, let me step back just a second. You know, you referred to the first executive order, 13.851. It's useful to just even use the title and not the number. It's called Blocking Property of Certain Persons Contributing to the Situation in Nicaragua. This was sort of the first big step by the United States after the April 2018 crackdown, and they tried to really sanction the economic and financial interests of people engaged in that crackdown and supporting that crackdown and repression. Keep in mind that the OES Special Research Investigative Unit determined that those were crimes against humanity back in 2018, so it was a very serious thing. The modification that came later was really an attempt to close some of the loopholes that had emerged and popped up in the first version of the executive order. And so that's where they started to look at some of the trade agreements and some specific sectors of the economy, like the gold mining sector, which is one that the administration has come back to, and I think properly so. I don't know if it's a total paradigm shift, in my mind, a paradigm shift would have been sort of deciding aggressively to pursue all angles in the doctor trade deal. This seems to be trying to plug certain holes of what uh, that emerged after the first executive order. It's advancing, it's tightening, it's, it's hardening, if you will, but I don't know if I would put it in the category of a paradigm shift because I think that would have required more aggressive action in terms of the DR trade deal, which by the way, and as you know, Ryan, the Congress has been pushing the administration to do for now, I believe it's almost two years. Thanks, Eric.
0: In light of the shifting approach and this spaghetti bowl that you've outlined, it's important to understand how and where additional economic measures can have the greatest impact for pressuring the regime. At the moment, it seems the United States, possibly with the exception being the the sugar industry, which I would note is largely dominated by non-Nicaraguan companies, the United States is focusing primarily on entities that are closely controlled by the regime or by its cronies such as the gold sector, as you mentioned. In your opinion, if the Biden administration is going to pursue sectoral sanctions, how should it make the determination as to which sectors should be sanctioned?
1: Yeah, I think it's really important that any sectoral sanctions be very carefully targeted, right? There could be sanctions again against tourism industry, for example, but that may have devastating impact on not just the regime, but also the vast you know large number of nicaraguans that work in that service sector which is a really important sector of the nicaraguan economy i think there's no perfect target that will affect the regime and will not affect any nicaraguans but you need to minimize those things to the extent possible and so focusing on the gold industry sector the military its social security investments and system are all, I think, very ripe targets for continued sanctioning. Anything that's really undergirding the family's economic interests, more so than broader Nicaraguan interests. I don't know if I'm making that distinction clear clearly enough, but I think in some ways, and this is a little crass to say it, but I, in some ways I get this sense that the Ortega regime doesn't really care too much what happens to that broader Nicaraguan society. They're willing to absorb sanctions as long as it doesn't touch on their particular economic interests as a family, as an enterprise. And that's where we need to really drill down in my estimation. So one related question to what you just said, Eric, is the number of foreign companies
0: that are operating In Nicaragua, how should the Biden administration think about non Nicaraguan companies that operate in Nicaragua but don't have ties to the Ortega regime, some of which are being impacted by the sanctions?
1: Well, I think other experiences, like in Venezuela, et cetera, have indicated that it's important to continue to pressure those companies, one way or another, to think carefully about how their investments are being used and utilized in the country to the extent that they're undergirding and underpinning a repressive regime. I think all those things are relevant and important. Just prior to coming on this call, I was on a call with the Partnership for Central America, which is a big initiative from the Biden administration, from Vice President Harris, to try to generate investment in companies who are going to invest in Central America. And one of the fine lines they're trying to discuss is How do you increase investment without strengthening or undergirding a regime or government that may be corrupt and repressive and undemocratic? And I think those are valid questions. That's the areas where the sanctioning regimes are not as clear, and we have to have a very kind of clear-eyed perspective in making those tough trade-off choices there. But I would be inclined to lean into it more than lean back to be honest with you so in addition to sectors of the nicaraguan
0: economy the regime relies upon a number of other sources to sustain its authoritarian rule you mentioned a very important one eric already you mentioned this the military's social welfare institute which goes by the spanish acronym of ipsum how should the united states be looking at these kinds of regime financing sources as part of a revised sanctions framework
1: I personally think it's highly important to look at these, to understand clearly how the regime is financing itself, not just in a general way, but in a very specific way. I think the uh, military's social security system is one that we need to monitor very carefully. And if it has an extensive presence in the United States, obviously it uses the international banking system. I think those are valid and legitimate targets to try to limit the scope and the power and the survival of a pretty repressive regime. I want to ask you the, the proverbial million dollar question now,
0: Eric, in this section of our, our podcast. You mentioned CAFTA DR, and you mentioned the fact that Congress has been agitating for this move for two plus years now. Should suspension of Nicaragua from CAFTA DR based on the agreement's national security considerations be on the table in Washington?
1: Well, I I think it has been, and I'm glad that it is on the table. I don't have the perception that the administration is moving in that direction. And so I think a continuing discussion around that is vitally important. I personally think that DR-CAFTA the provisions around governance and human rights and labor rights in DR-CAFTA are pretty weak and the enforcement mechanisms are pretty weak, that there should be an attempt by the United States to either renegotiate those or put that back on the table as an area where we can strengthen the the entirety of DR-CAFTA. As you know, there's a legal argument that says there is no way of expelling one country from doctor I think that's still an open question, but a lot of people in the administration, legal folks that know trade deals better than I do, would argue that there's no mechanism or vehicle for expelling one country. So I would suggest that maybe it's time for us to relook at that agreement and tighten up some of those sectors because it should be valid for Guatemala, Salvador, and Honduras as much as it is for, should be for Nicaragua. Obviously, we're concerned deeply about the direction that's happening, what's going on in Nicaragua, but maybe we should treat them all, try to strengthen those mechanisms, and thus really put more pressure on the Nicaraguans.
0: Economic pressure is an important tool in the United States arsenal, as we've discussed, for applying pressure against the regime especially as Nicaragua remains dependent on access to U.S. markets for more than half of its total exports. However, it is also critical, I think when we talk about sanctions as a mechanism to acknowledge the potential negative effects a sweeping sanctions campaign may pose for individuals who have little to any link to the regime itself. Eric, can you describe any types of labor displacements potentially involved in sanctioning sectors of the Nicaraguan economy?
1: Well, the labor sector in, in Nicaragua is distributed in around three broad categories, agriculture, industry, and services. And so just from a very simplistic point of view, obviously any sanctions that are broad in the service sector are going to have a greater impact on labor in all those areas. I think we need to be careful about sanctions that are too broadly based and will have too much impact on the Nicaraguans themselves because it can generate more migration. And Nicaragua is already creating and expelling and has major outflows of migration, both to Costa Rica and increasingly to the United States. So I think that's one thing where we need to be careful and not overreach, not create a situation where The regime stays above the water on its own, with its own economic uh, supports, while everybody else is suffering. That would be a mistake. And so I think we need to look carefully at the question of labor force displacement and how Nicaraguans in general are affected. Recent polls show or suggest, I mean, polling is hard, but suggest that. Ortega and FSLN popularity in the country are really very low, one of the lowest in the entire region of Central America. I just think that the more we can target the family itself, Tego Murillo, and their enterprises, the better off we are.
0: Yeah, the numbers have really been astonishing, as you mentioned, Eric. Nicaragua has lost nearly 5% of its population to migration, both southward to Costa Rica and northward to the United States. I wanted to ask you if you have any thoughts on two of the sectors that have been targeted specifically, gold and, and sugar, and ask you if those have had impacts on the Ortega-Murillo regime and on the other side of this balance we're trying to strike, whether they've had impacts on migratory flows.
1: Well. On the sugar sanctions, as, as you mentioned yourself, ironically, the ownership and the most economic interest has been other than Nicaraguans. And so Guatemalans in some ways have been, and I mean Guatemalan industry and sugar industry, has been probably impacted as much as Nicaragua itself in those sugar sanctions. Now, one could argue that to the extent that there's a fissure between Nicaragua and Guatemala and that that's made worse by these kinds of sanctions, it may have some positive impact. Right now, Nicaragua is benefiting from regional solidarity, Central American regional solidarity. They tend to hang together, support one another. And so to the extent you can peel countries off, that might be useful as well. But that's that's a pretty difficult challenge. So I'm not sure that the sanctioning on the sugar sector has had as much impact. I would say no, it has not had as much impact as one would would like. Gold mining I think is a little more interesting. Gold mining has, and gold exports to the United States have grown immensely over the last couple of years. It's really been a growth area and the Ortegas have involvement there. Some people have speculated that the executive order, the second one that mentioned the gold sector in particular, really did throw a scare into the Ortega family, that their economic interests would be impacted more and more, and that that kind of opened the door for the release of the political prisoners. Not entirely convinced of that argument, but I do think there's a case to be made that focusing on the gold sector as the U.S. has begun to do is really an important one and could have maybe longer term impact.
0: One final question in this section of our episode, Eric, is about messaging. How can the United States think about messaging more effectively to prevent the regime from laying the blame on sanctions for its own corruption and economic mismanagement?
1: Well, it goes back to my earlier point. I think the U.S. needs to make clear in its, all its declarations that the targets here are the Ortega Murillo family and not the Nicaraguan people. I think this is what regimes, Venezuela, Cuba, others do, you know, say they're making your life more difficult and the average person is suffering, not us. So I think clarity in the messaging around that, that this is very clearly focused on the regime, the power behind it and their economic interests, is a really important element here. The other aspect of this is that for sanctions to be effective, they have to create some kind of an off-ramp, right? That perception that they're permanent, never change, becomes a disincentive for any kind of change in behavior, which is what we want. So I think the US can do a better job about saying, we can think about sanction relief if these three or four things are met or conditions are met. That's what we want, behavior change, not just punishment. And so I think the messaging there has to be clear as well, because often the regimes twist it to make it sound like this is a permanent war against the people of Nicaragua, Venezuela, whatever country. That's detrimental.
0: We've talked at length now about what sanctions look like in the Nicaraguan context. Let's zoom out for a moment to talk about sanctions as tools against authoritarianism broadly. The regime benefits from a network of authoritarian allies in the region and further afield, all of whom have track records of skirting US-led sanctions campaigns. So how should we factor in these authoritarian networks in crafting an approach to the regime?
1: I think it's a huge challenge, obviously. I think we need to be clear about those elements of mutual support between the various regimes. But I also think, and this is what all the scholarship says about sanctioning in general, that the more sanctions can be multilateral, the more countries work together, the more difficult it is for the target country to be skirted, in this case, Nicaragua. Now, can you cover every element in which they can skirt it, every loophole? Pretty difficult. But the more the U.S., which is in the driver's seat here, we understand that, but the more the U.S. can work with the EU and other countries in South America in a healthy multilateral way, I think the less opportunity there is for skirting those sanctions and benefiting, even though the intention is to block certain entities and persons. What lessons
0: might we be able to draw from past sanctions campaigns, either in the Western hemisphere or globally, to inform the way we construct the sanctions architecture on Nicaragua?
1: The main lessons that seem to emerge constantly in all the studies and analysis has been We need to be more precise, more narrowly focused, look for behavioral change. In other words, lay out what are the criteria to get out of the sanctions, not just promises to negotiate, but actually sitting down and negotiating, actually making changes. Promises are never enough. We want to see outcomes. Be multilateral, as I just said. I think those are... incredibly important, all kinds of different sanctioning like exports of oil or firearms or arms trafficking or technology. You need to do it as broadly as possible, even though the U.S. may be the big player. And I think ultimately be willing to accept progress when progress occurs, right? I think a lot of time, including myself, become pretty hopeless on countries like Nicaragua and and all the repression and undemocratic activity. But if there are some signs of progress, real progress, not just promises, then I think we need to be willing to evaluate next steps and change as the reality on the ground changes. Eric, is
0: there something that we did not cover in the podcast episode? Is there anything else that you would like to highlight
1: or add? Well, I would just say two other things. We've talked a lot about sanctions especially economic sanctions those are all really valuable tools we mentioned trade deals and how important that is i think the role of the international financial institutions is also really important may not fall into the sanctions category but the role that the central american bank of economic integration plays and has played and continues to play in propping up nicaragua pouring money into nicaragua is a really serious question. And you were part of that debate with the president. He was not reelected, but they continue to play an important role. So we need to look at that as well. You know, the IMF, in my opinion, has been also partly responsible here because over the years, and I just look in preparation for this, they have given Nicaragua a pretty positive review of their economic situation. I was reading their recent report saying that Nicaragua handled the pandemic and global recession pretty well, and they have a good, relatively good economy. Nobody's going to mistaken them for the United States, but, you know, and yet they don't seem to look beyond the issue of, say, macroeconomic performance to the broader political agenda. You know, the IFIs, the multilateral banks, have a way of saying, well, we just deal with trade and economic and investment and macro. We don't look at democracy and human rights and Political realities; those are something different. In my view, those things are integrated, and one of the reasons you know IMF missed the boat in 2018 is they were giving them positive economic reviews, and yet the country explodes in fire and really goes through an economic downturn. So I think we need to press the banks. Some do a better job than others, but we need to press the banks to really have a full comprehensive view of what's going on in the country, not just their trade imbalance or their current account deficit, but more holistically viewing it because that's uh, important. So just to add to the sanction discussion, there are other elements and tools here that need to be looked at. And then, of course, there's the political pressure that goes beyond economic tools that that's diplomatic and that's multilateral that I think is really important.
0: Eric Olson, Director of Policy and Strategic Initiatives for the Seattle International Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us today on 35 West. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us.
1: Thanks a lot, Ryan, really appreciate it.
0: For you, thank you for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.